What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, everybody. John Manuel and Matt Eddy here with you with a Baseball America podcast. Whole reason for this podcast, Matt, is not to talk about the prospect handbook, which went to press just before Christmas, uh, just before the holiday season was really upon us. And we hope that everyone out there who listens to Baseball America podcasts enjoys the Baseball America Prospect Handbook. You can order that online at baseballamerica.com slash store, or you can call 800-845-2726. We strongly encourage you to do so. But the reason for the podcast is to jump right in and talk Hall of Fame balloting. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday. Hall of Fame will be announced on Wednesday. Matt, you are our resident a Hall of a person with the most passion for the Hall of Fame and both of us have read the seminal work by Bill James, Whatever Happened to the Hall of Fame, The Politics of Glory, published under two different names. Either way, great book that goes into the history of the Hall of Fame. And I think that's the, probably the reason that you and I have the strongest feelings, I think, about the Hall. And it does seem like this time of year, Matt, the media is not just full of ballots, but it's full of baseball fans' angst about the balloting, which I guess means a lot of people care about it. And I think some people hate themselves for caring about it. I like caring about it. I like that it matters, and uh, I, I don't mind the debate. It doesn't uh, it doesn't bother me. But uh, have, have you tired of the debate? Uh, are you just or, or are you still pretty into it because of uh, how esteemed, how much esteem we hold the Hall of Fame in? Well, I always loved it. I mean, I, growing up, I went to the Hall of Fame several times. Growing up in New York City, and uh, I just perhaps that that colored my impression of the Hall and its various processes. But I, I always enjoyed the discussion. And you went last year. I mean, that was that was was that your first induction ceremony? I forget. Was it first or second? Yeah, yeah, first induction ceremony. The, the banner class of, of Jonathan Pedro. It's going to be very difficult to beat. I don't think we're going to beat it this year. But what I wanted to use to start our discussion and to key our discussion off of was this. Uh, it's hard to keep it organized. Uh, the way I wanted to keep it organized was this uh, fine uh, alphabetical order list that Barry's Verluga of the Washington Post did um, on WashingtonPost.com. Going over the order of the 16 most likely players to be elected into the Hall of Fame this year. Now, he doesn't handicap them. He also does not include Jeff Kent, 
So if you are think that I'm sliding Jeff Kent, blame Barry Sverluga, uh, and don't blame me. But um, I thought this was a, a the best handy slash dandy list, Matt, and uh, I wanted to work off of that. So it's alphabetical order by last name. So I kind of wanted to go down the players, and, and we'll discuss uh, where we think these guys uh, fall, and yay or nay, whether you'd vote for them. Uh, if you were a, a Hall of Fame voter, I'm not a Hall of Fame voter. I am in the BBWAA, but I've only been in for one year or so. And I will also direct people to the fact that Matt has written the last two years. He's coordinated BA's Hall of Fame votes. Um, I guess we actually did that. Did we do it three years in a row or just the last two years? This will be the third. When we started getting over certain ballots, we're getting more than 10 candidates. I wanted to, to carry out like an alternate universe exercise and see if we could clear the deck a little bit. We've reached that point this year where we have Griffey as a, as a Truman, I think, in everybody's opinion. And there's no other obvious guy after that. Right. No, I agree. There isn't an obvious guy. So we inducted seven two years ago in the alternate universe BAHOF, Maddox, Frank Thomas, Glavin, Piazza, Clemens, Bonds, and Bagwell. We got those guys off mm-hmm. the decks two years ago. And then mm-hmm. in 2015, we elected, uh, what was it, three, uh, six more, I guess it was, Randy Johnson, Pedro Martinez, John Smoltz, Kurt Schilling, Mike Mussina, all pitchers, and then Craig Biggio. So we went a little pitcher crazy last year. Um, <laughs> and we should say that it's the current BA editorial staff voting plus um, colleagues in good standing who have left BA. And I think the voter pool turns out to be about 25 people each year. Yeah, it's a, I like the way you put that. Um, it's a it's a it's a knowledgeable voter class, in other words. So, mm-hmm. um, we we hope that the two of us, as a knowledgeable voter class, will jump will jump in with uh, this uh, uh, again off the Barry off Barry's list with Jeff Bagwell. Now, Jeff Bagwell in the BA uh, again, we 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 put him in in twenty fourteen. Uh, one of the crazy things about Jeff Bagwell, this is his sixth year of eligibility, Matt. I thought it was going to be, when he was playing, I really thought it was obvious that this guy was a Hall of Famer. He was basically Paul Goldschmidt for kind of 14 years. Uh, Power, speed, defense at first base. Um, And he did it for so long. And he really didn't have a long decline phase either. Even in his last full season, he was what a 116 OPS plus, I believe it was. Um, still Still a very productive player. And the everyday first baseman, uh, you know, for a team that went to the NLCS. Now, the next year, when the Astros went to the World Series, he wasn't a healthy player. He wasn't a productive player. But that's his. That's it. He packed it in at that point. Still played 156 games in his last full season as a regular. So, uh, so no decline phase. To me, that's the reason that he didn't get to 500 homers. Um, but I'm, I'm surprised that he has not gotten more support. Are you surprised, and what do you think his chances are this year? You know, I haven't taken a look at the, the various projection systems. I don't think he was up at a, at a threshold last year where you would expect him to get in the following year. But they did change the voter pool, so who knows? I think all that old research goes out the window. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, it's, it's for me, yeah, he's a slam dunk. MVP winner, two other top three finishes, you know, 449 home runs. Best first baseman of the 90s, really. Yeah, for me... Uh... I guess it was 55.7% last year. Matt was his voting percentage last year. So it'd be a pretty big leap for him to get in. Under, under the old rule, under the uh, the old rules, yeah. I don't know if thinning the, the herd is going to help him 
presumably it will help him, right? I, I would think so. First of all, just probability. He's got to get fewer votes. You know, it feels like it's, I know it's still 75%, but it's it's an easier, uh, so, so it's not probability. But like you said, they, they have thinned the herd of older school voters who I think look at a first baseman, see, don't see 500 home runs and don't vote for him. You know, otherwise, right. otherwise how, did Fred, how did Fred McGriff never get in, you know? Um, yeah. I think this is a better and, percentage player than McGriff and was a great oh, yeah. play. Was He was a great player longer than McGriff, even though he has a little bit less, uh, a little bit fewer black numbers. He didn't lead the league in home runs as often as McGriff did. Yeah, it would be interesting for somebody to find if he ever led the league in, in road home runs, for example, because he played in the Astrodome so many years. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, he, and he, has, he does have two big awards. He has a Rookie of the Year in two, 1991, MVP in the abbreviated 1994 season, that season being his best year, being truncated in August, that certainly did not help. Um, this is just my own anecdotal thing that I use. <laughs> With players who are suspected of PED use, I want to mm-hmm. see if their best play, if their best seasons came in their 30s or in their 20s. And uh, Bagwell had a little bit more of a normal age curve. His best seasons were 94 at age 26 and then 96. At age 28, which is like a normal best year to have. His last truly monster year was at age 32. And, uh, you know, he still had good years after that, but he was done as a player at age 37, uh, effectively mm-hmm. done at 36. To me, that passes my general sniff tests. I don't think he. So I know there's suspicion about him. I understand why. It seems like it's all based off the fact that he had four home runs his last year. Um, in the minor leagues at Double A New Britain, but uh, to me, there's not enough of that evidence to uh, to keep him. Well, and longtime teammates with Ken Caminiti too. Yeah, that's well, that's the other. Yeah, it's guilt by association. Yeah. So that's what's keeping yeah. Kevin Bass out right now for sure. Not kidding. <laughs> that that team had. Uh, the, I don't know how the Astros of the late '80s, early '90s never made it into my switch hitter feature with Caminiti and Kevin Bass as. Uh, two great switchers, yeah. and and Lance Berkman after that. Um, yeah, on the right. But uh, but yeah, so so we're both Bagwell guys. Um, next on the list, Barry U.S. Bonds. He's been voted in for Baseball America. I mean, Matt, what do you do? You hold it against those who keep him out uh, by the obvious reasons to keep him out? His association with PEDs. Uh, d- does that bother you that people would want to have kept him out because of that? No, not really. I um, I think it's better to exercise caution now rather than regret the decision to put him in later. If if you are on the fence on, on the issue, what's the, what's the expression? You can't unring the bell. That's it. That's exactly right. That's, um, that's a great I, I would reason. Vote because I don't know, uh, you know, the, the standard argument. You don't know who used. You don't know which pitchers used, et cetera, et cetera. And it, you know, and obviously you can't tell the story of the period in which Bond played without talking about him. That's how I feel about it. That's why I vote for him. But I, I do respect those who don't. And uh, and one of the articles I meant to send you and didn't was about, uh, was in the Dallas Morning News. Uh, Evan Grant was on a radio show with uh, Michael Young. And Michael Young, the you know former Rangers infielder, had some very strong uh, no votes. <laughs> Some very strong reasons for no votes for Bonds and Clemens about, you know, how those players cheated their fellow players and these kind of things. 
But to me, mm-hmm. that, that uh, you know, and I understand Michael Young's. Well, actually, I mean, I really don't because I'm not a major league player. I think I understand right. where he's coming from. But at the same time, it really does feel like the players who complain about it, I think it's some sour grapes because those guys who were their contemporaries were in the union. And that's how Major League Baseball avoided PED testing was the players' union. And if you wanted it, you as a player had a say in it. And you should have raised the stink. I think it's some sour grapes to complain about it now when you didn't really do much about it then when you played. And you had the ability... Excuse me, you had the ability to do something about it. Um, there's players who were mm-hmm. silent at that time. I think they cheated the game as much as the players who cheated did in a way. Not not as much, but they did because they were the ones who really had the most power to do something about it because that had to be collectively bargained. And it didn't end until the players stood up and said, yes, we want testing. We want a level playing field. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's fair. Like, you know, in the argument, you could also construct an argument in favor of Bonds if he just used his alleged, um, his, his career before his alleged involvement with, um, by, uh, with PEDs. You know, he, he was already at 494 home runs after the 2000 season. And, uh, yeah, that, like through 98 is kind of the way I've always seen that. And he was already, yeah. he was already one of the best players. Uh, you know, he was arguably the best player of the 90s already to that point. Um, so I, I do think there's validity to that argument as well. He has a better pre PED career than Roger Clemens, who's next alphabetically. Again, already enshrined in the BA Hall of Fame voting, because Clemens' career really up to it's really his Red Sox career and then his post Red Sox career, and he and Bonds are kind of the reason why I like why I discussed with Bagwell. You know, those are the guys whose best years of their careers really came. In their 30s and 40s, and uh, I know. <laughs> and that is the past the smell test for me. For some reason, I have a bigger problem with Clemens than I do with Bonds. I I don't know why. I grew up a Red Sox fan and a Clemens fan. Maybe that's part of it. I've actually met Clemens a couple times. I've talked with him at Under Armour games where his sons have been playing. He's a mammoth human being. I'm sure he was a big guy before he used. I think his just the way he's denied it. Um, the whole him and Pettit in the congressional stuff of their trial that he had, Clemens had, had none of that's reflected well on Roger Clemens for me. And yet I would still vote him in, Matt. And uh, again, I just don't think you can tell the history of the last 50 years of the game without mentioning the guy who won seven MVPs. And how many Cy Youngs did Clemens win? Did he win seven Cy Youngs? Yeah, he won seven Cy Youngs. I mean, so that's why I vote him in. But I kind of yeah. hold my I hold my nose more for him than I do for Bonds, frankly. Yeah, even if, even if you penalize or discount his achievements, you know you take X percent off of 354 wins. Still right. a lot of wins, right? <laughs> or 4,000 plus strike, 4,600 strikeouts for crying out loud, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, even just his Boston career was 192 and 111. With a 306 ERA, a 144 ERA plus, ERA plus, nearly 2,600 strikeouts. I mean, just with the Red Sox, uh, he averaged 8.4 strikeouts per game. That's the thing I didn't notice. Barry's article brought to light. He never gave up home runs. You know, he only gave up 0.6 home runs per nine innings. Um, for a power pitcher, that's a remarkably low ratio, is it not? 
It is, especially in some of his home parks, like Fenway and, and Yankee Stadium. Yeah, he has only five seasons out of 24 in which he gave up 20 home runs or more. It's uh, That's remarkable. And uh, I don't know how, uh, you know, to me, that's that's one of the – and that's a guy who was the ultimate also kind of tall and fall pitcher. I was texting mm-hmm. with a I was texting with a scout about this and you know how Tom Seaver we were talking about Hall of Fame and scouts not scouts getting into the Hall of Fame but could scouts help the Hall of Fame or you know t- it made sense to me as he and I discussed it if the major league if the baseball writers association had like a scouts wing where you could talk to scouts who saw those players a lot as big leaguers and get their opinions on whether those guys were Hall of Fame worthy or not um, borderline type players. And one thing that we kind of talked about is how Seaver influenced pitchers to pitch like Seaver and Clemens influenced a generation of pitchers to pitch like Clemens with this kind of tall and fall delivery. Whereas, uh, Seaver had been this drop and drive, uh, pitcher. So I, I found that interesting. Larry Walker has always been my touchstone. I think you've heard me talk about that where scouts have comped every right fielder for the last 15 years to Larry Walker. He's the standard that kind of made me think that he should be in the Hall of Fame. Now I've kind of <laughs> rethought my position on Larry Walker, which I guess we'll get to later. Um, we'll get to him, yeah. Don't want to get ahead of the game. I want to go to King Griffey Jr., easiest guy on the ballot. I mean, uh, do you think he'll get 100% of the vote, Matt? Uh, or will he eclipse? No. I guess it's 98.6. Is that correct? Is that Seaver is the highest ballot getter in, in the past? I think so. But again, we do have a new voter base. So maybe the idea of the no first ballots, no exceptions is is maybe a thing of the past. I don't know. I think that's possible. Uh, and if it is, to me, I think Griffey has the best chance to get in. Um, I would say the next most likely guy would be Rivera and then Jeter. I think that Jeter was too polarizing for some people. Um, that some people aren't going to vote for Jeter just because he's Jeter. But who doesn't like Mariano Rivera? You know? Everybody <laughs> everybody loves Rivera. You know, he's he's extremely properly rated. Greatest closer ever. So if Griffey doesn't get 100%, I think it might be Rivera. I don't think it'll be Jeter. I don't know what your thoughts on on, on that, whether that matters or not. You know, your Hall of Famer. Yeah, Hall of Famer. well, yeah, I mean, it's like, the, who, who are the people who didn't vote for Maddox or Randy Johnson? I mean, those are both good cases, you know, but yes, right. they didn't get it. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. Well, I, 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 guess I think, you, I think you, we're going to learn, we're going to learn a lot from this first election under the, under the, the, the new voting block. I think you're right. It is less, the past voting is less instructive than uh, than it has been in, in the past because the voting pool has changed somewhat significantly. We'll see how significantly. We really don't know how significantly it's changed. Trevor Hoffman, Matt, Eddie, that is a tough Hall of Fame This is case. a tough one. He's the toughest one on the ballot, I think. Uh, I think so. Because, um, you know, spoiler alert, we're, you know, we're running our election right now. All the results are not in. Um, Hoffman is just on the outside right now. Uh, if he gets enough late support, he might clear the hurdle. But he's, you know, I think the people who support him put him, you know, maybe just a notch below Griffey. That's surprising because to me, his case is pretty weak, Matt. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. I think it's yeah, a go weak for case. It. I mean, I, I just, I think it's not a strong case. It's not only that he's just a reliever, it's that he's pretty much. Uh, only a guy who got saves. <laughs> There's not, mm-hmm. and uh, I know he had one of the greatest changeups of all time. But on this same ballot, I think Billy Wagner eclipses him. 
And I, at the time, when they were contemporaries, I thought Billy Wagner was better. I think Trevor Hoffman mm-hmm. did it longer, but I, I thought that uh, I always thought Billy Wagner was better, more dominant. It's harder to be a left-handed closer. You do not have, uh, you know, for me, there's just fewer in history, and more teams have right-handed bats on their bench than left-handed bats on their bench. I, I always thought it was harder for Wagner. Uh, they're just more right-handed hitters than left-handed hitters, so he did not have the platoon advantage with him. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. That's really why I wanted to say that. <laughs> but uh, but to me, when you measure these guys, when you put these guys' careers together, outside of saves, I think Wagner uh, comes out ahead of, of Trevor Hoffman. I think it's going to be hard for – so for me, that's why I wouldn't have put either one of them in. I would have to get a lot more granular – uh, into their candidacies, and I, I would like to see someone do that. I haven't seen that granular look at both candidacies. I have a feeling Hoffman's going to get a lot more votes than Wagner, though. Yes, <laughs> and in fact, he is in, in just our uh, you know alternate universe polling. He's I think he has double the support that Wagner does. And I, and I think it's a, I think it comes down to the one number that he said collecting saves. He's at six hundred and one. He was for a time the record holder. He still was the National League record holder. But in terms of, um, you know, and he, and he gets points for longevity. He basically right. was 42, which is amazing for, a, you know, a reliever who can work every other day. It is, but, it's remarkable. Know, of, he's, like a, he's like a Jesse Orozco who got saved. Yeah. But in terms of run prevention, I think, no, he doesn't really stand out compared to the other one-inning guys, you know, his peers. Right. Um, it's my opinion, like you said, the best changeup ever, but he's not the classic fire-breathing closer like a Billy Wagner or particularly early career Rivera. And he's not uh, – the other thing that kind of kills him for me is durability. You know, he pitched uh, over – more than – he pitched 90 innings as a rookie um, between the Marlins and Padres. After 1997, so in his 30s, he never pitched more than 80 innings ever again. And he didn't pitch more than 70 innings after 2000. So the last like, 10 years of his career, he was always a one-inning or less guy. And, uh, you know, a saves machine. And that's great. Now, that's a hard job. But he was not nearly as dominant as Wagner. He gave up more hits, uh, more hits per innings pitched. Pitched in a very favorable ballpark, a ballpark that even allowed Heath freaking Bell to be a good closer. Um, I, I don't, I don't see it. Uh, I don't see it for Hoffman. I don't see even how he's any better than Lee Arthur Smith. To be totally right, honest. right. I, I think it's. I, know. I, I think Lee Smith has the same career. And if you shift Lee Smith's career back ten years, Lee Smith probably gets six hundred saves. You know. Well. Well, hold on. We have uh, we have Bruce Gossage on the other line here. He's got an opinion on this too. <laughs> I'm sure he does. <laughs> these guys with these one inning saves <laughs> but, ain't worth crap. But, but I no, I, I agree with you. I think um, <laughs> <laughs> I think you know maybe the way the starting pitcher usage is trending. Maybe we'll get to a point where we have three inning starters, three inning middle guys, and whatever but God help maybe us. then maybe then the one inning closers will look more attractive but for now i think that's one demographic that i'm comfortable taking the wait and see approach on 
Now here's another demographic that the Hall voters have taken a wait-and-see approach on that, and that is designated hitters as represented right. by Edgar Martinez. Now we have one, in my mind, we have two DHs in the Hall. I know he's not right. a pure DH, but Paul Molitor, to me, is more DH than man. And, uh, and Frank Thomas yep. played the majority. I guess with, Frank, with Paul Molitor, it was a plurality of games at DH, right? And with Frank Thomas, it was a majority of games. Am I correct on that? I, I think that's yes. fair characterization. Yeah. Edgar Martinez, and you and I talked about this last week after the end of the handbook, where I, after the end of an issue, I guess, not even the handbook, where I, I, I wouldn't let you go home to your, <laughs> to your family, and I wouldn't go home to my family as I railed on about the NBA team. <laughs> but um, DeAndre Jordan and the hack of Jordan rules of the NBA were teams just deliberately foul, bad foul shooters now. And you have guys like Jeff Van Gundy and other commentators in the NBA saying, we've got to change these rules because these guys can't shoot free throws and this is crap. To me, that made me think, that made me lose my usual support for the DH, which I have come to believe, especially after what you wrote last year, it is a more entertaining game with a DH. And the bottom line is pitchers don't even try to hit. So it's so vestigial it's not worth preserving. That said, uh, the DeAndre Jordan thing gave made me rethink that a little bit. I'm so on the fence with Edgar Martinez as a Hall of Famer. I feel like if he gets in, it doesn't bother me. If he fails to get in, it doesn't bother me either. Ultimately, I would vote in because I'm a big Hall guy. Uh, I'm not sure how you where, – where would you fall on Edgar? Yeah, he's the toughest guy in the ballot for me as well. Uh, this year, in our, our pretend one, I, I did vote for him. Um, you know, <laughs> his, his career numbers are outstanding. He has some black ink. But he was never really regarded, I don't think, as one of the best players in the league. You can, you know, if you look at his MVP balloting, I think he has one top three finish. Um, I agree. I think that's a big part of it for him is that you know, he played on some incredibly talented Mariners yeah. teams, but he was never the guy for the Mariners. They had A-Rod, they had Griffey, they had Randy Johnson, they had Ichiro. He was never the guy. He doesn't really out... I mean, he has the one moment, I guess. He had the game when he hit in 95, right? The drive-in. But that was always thought of right. kind of as Junior's moment because Griffey was the one who scored. Yeah, and he was the, probably the best hitter on the uh, non-Griffey, non-A-Rod. But one Mariners too. Well, but they had each year. Yeah, okay, that's true. But that's, that's not one moment. But I think that was right. He could drive a, a, an offense. Uh, he could. Uh, I, I don't have. I don't have a problem uh, that there already is a DH in the Hall of Fame. How much more defensive value Frank Thomas had than Edgar Martinez is very debatable. But mm -hmm. I, I do think you can penalize him for being a DH because. If he were right. good enough to play another position, he probably would have. And it does mean he was a less well-rounded player than a lot of his peers. And it, do, it does mean yeah. that. If you're going to be yeah. less well-rounded, you better hit like crazy. And he did. Mm -hmm. you know, so I don't, I, don't, I don't... He is one of the best hitters of the last 50 years. I don't think there's a, a question about that. Yeah, I mean, just by definition, not playing defense you know, decreases your value to your team. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, and he did not play defense a thousand times, <laughs> so kind of a big deal there. Um, but we we both would put him in. 
How about uh, Mark McGuire there, Matt? I mean, a guy who, you know, I, I think I always undersell his career because I do know he had some really, he had some of the worst years by Hall of Fame caliber player of all mm-hmm. time. And I think there's no question that he would not have had a career of any duration if he hadn't used because he couldn't stay healthy before he used. There's a very yep. clear delineation in his career. So I, I've i gone back and forth on him. I would rather he weren't in the Hall of Fame than yeah, I think he, if, if you're not going to vote for Rafael Palmeiro and he's not even on the ballot anymore, then I wouldn't vote for Mark McGuire. And that's kind of how I feel about uh, McGuire. But, but I do feel... It's kind of weird the first dude to hit 70 home runs is in the Hall of Fame, you know? <laughs> it's not, it, it rings a bit contrary when we're talking, when we're kind of downplaying Bonds and Clemens' involvement. Right. You know? I, um, I, when McGuire retired, I thought he was a Hall of Famer, but uh, my opinion has, has changed a little bit. You know, I, in fact, I don't, I have not voted for him in this process. Did you vote for him or not? I did not. I wound up not voting for him. And my opinion of him also has changed. And that's even after he admitted it. But I think when you... I do think it's splitting hairs when you're comparing the Clemens-Bonds versus McGuire. But I just feel like those guys proved to me that they could stay healthy, grind it out, and be the best of the best before PEDs. So that's where that case actually does matter to me. And McGuire didn't, you know, McGuire at his healthy best early in his career was really good. And then he was really not, you know, and um, I don't feel like he would have lasted 15 years in the major leagues without PEDs. And uh, basically he had the one great year, his rookie year, when he was clean and uh, he had other good years, but uh, I guess really had two. He had 87 and he had 92. Well. But then he couldn't stay on the field, and I, I feel like he, he pretty much admitted that that's why he used, right, was to stay on the field. That's my understanding. That's my understanding. Yeah, and if, and if, you, if you're into the advanced metrics like War, for example, he is the seventh best um, first base DH from 1985 to present. That's interesting. He's behind, he's behind Pujols, Bagwell, Frank Thomas, Tome, Palmero, and Edgar. So I guess we're, we're calling it the, the Edgar, Edgar line. I think he's a little bit below the Edgar line. Uh, and I think yeah. we, I think we agree on that. Um, mm-hmm. Tremendous power, very fun player to watch. Uh, it he might be the all time might be the all time leader in isolated slugging, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that I did not know. Somebody inform Aaron Fitz. <laughs> Notorious in Baseball America annals for his lack of knowledge of isolated slugging. Yeah, it's a two fifty <laughs> for his career, a two fifty five. ISO, which is pretty sick. The is that guys, higher or lower than his batting average? Just barely below his batting average, which was 263. <laughs> that is what struck me. You, you, you anticipated exactly what I was going to say. I, that is, that's an eight. You're looking for eight, two to eight scale. You're looking for eight power. That's eight power. Oh, Mike, yeah. <laughs> Mike Mussina, now Mike Mussina, um, Matt, had no eights on the card, but he certainly had nothing below a six. And I feel like he's the uh, flip side of McGuire. He was so much more consistent, but so much more, um, you know, so much less spectacular. Also, I'll always harken back to the Rob Nyer article that Jim Callis, our other former colleague, um, 
love to talk about where Mike Mussina was reported to be kind of a clubhouse cancer. And part of the reason was that he didn't always get along with players of all ethnic groups. Um, so I wonder if some writers have held that against Mussina. I haven't seen anybody write that, but that said, just evaluating him as a player, he's a hall of famer. I don't see how people aren't voting for this guy. And I used to be a little, uh, shaky on his case, but in modern, the way modern starting pitchers are used, he was... Maybe not the inner circle, but he's at the start of the second circle of elite starting pitchers. And he did it for a long time. Yeah. And yeah, I've, um, you know, again, he's one of those guys where during his career, you might not have thought of him instantly as a Hall of Famer. But I think when, when you view his record in totality, like you said, he pitched a long time and he pitched at a high level for a long time. And for me, he's also, he gets my vote too. It is amazing that he never made an all star game as a Yankee. Uh, all his all-star appearances were in his Orioles career. He was good as a Yankee. It just feels like so much more was expected of him as a Yankee. That uh, And then he retired the year before they won the last World Series. So he did not actually – he was on, what, two pennant winners, as I recall, with them, but never a World Series winner. That's correct. And I think he pitched uh, – well, I have it right in front of me, so I'll see how he pitched. Uh, in the world – in postseason play for the Yankees, he pitched poorly. And he pitched exceptionally well – for that 97 Orioles team that lost to the Indians. They were a superior team to the Indians, but lost them in the ALCS in 97. I uh, had the two wins against Randy Johnson and the Mariners in the ALDS that year. And so for the postseason that year, 29 innings and four starts, 11 hits allowed, seven walks, and 41 strikeouts. <laughs> He's pretty freaking good. In the '97 postseason, he had some other, you know, good moments for the Yankees, but in general, um, he wasn't very good in the postseason for them either. He didn't really have a a seminal moment uh, for the Yankees when he had chances in 2002. They won the, uh, they went back to the postseason. 2003, they won the pennant. Of course, 2004, one of the best years of my life. Uh, and then, uh, mm-hmm. uh, so, so, the, so he, and then, they, like you said, I mean, he was a 20 game winner in 2008. Um, and that was the only time he was ever a 20-game winner, and he went out on top. He retired that year, and then the next year, maybe it's a little Ewing theory, uh, as Bill Simmons would say, that with Mike Mussina out of the way, the Yankees could actually uh, win a World Series. Um, I don't tend to believe in Ewing theory, but it does kind of play into the good makeup, not good makeup, good teammate, not a good teammate kind of thing, at least a little bit. Um, It certainly plays into it if you think he was not the greatest teammate in the world, which is what uh, kind of I've gathered over the course of uh, being in the game a while. But that said, I still think Musina has to be in. And I'm just shocked that he only got 24.7% of the vote last year. Matt, do you think right. 246 do you think he'll get in eventually? Do you think that'll go up significantly this um, year? I, I think his case and Schilling's case in particular were just hurt by this historic wave of starting pitchers who have been elected in the last two years. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, all, all-time greats, Maddox and Clavin, Smoltz and Pedro and Randy Johnson. I mean, <laughs> I think now Schilling and Yusina, we'll talk about Schilling later, I think you're going to see them really start to gain some momentum. I mean, really, in, the, in, in what you and I like to call the common era, the expansion era of Major League Baseball, which really, like, when you're evaluating players to be in a 2016 context, that doesn't make sense to do it 
going back before the expansion era. So he's really modern baseball is really 1961 to the present. Expansion, you have television, you have jet travel, you have PEDs, you had amphetamines back then. You have uh, coast to coast, uh, West Coast teams, Latin American players, all of it. Uh, that, uh, draft. The, yeah. the player development system is similar as it is today. Yeah. yeah, that's obviously 65. But yes, but yeah, yeah. so you're in a, that's really a common era. Great point. Um, in that common era, Maddox, Johnson, and Martinez, along with Clemens, to me, those are the four best starting pitchers. <laughs> you know, pretty much it. Yes. You could throw in Seaver. Who else? I mean, maybe mm-hmm. for peak value, if you want to go Koufax, I, I, I feel that, although I think that Randy Johnson matches his peak and has him all over him in durability. So yeah, we're gonna get flamed. Yeah, I know we are, but uh I'm I'll say it I'll say it again. Um but to me those are about, arguably the four best uh, starting pitchers of that era. Carlton maybe if you if you're in that. Now that I yes. Steve Carlton the best Carlton and Seaver are the two who to me best fit with the other guys. I mean Pedro Martinez again very similar career in a lot of ways to Sandy Koufax, but he did it longer. So, right. Um, he was now, better. Yeah, I would say he was better. Um, let's go to Mike Piazza. Speaking of a former uh, teammate of Pedro Martinez's that came up together, one of my all-time favorite pictures in the BA library, that picture of Henry <laughs> Rodriguez, Mike Piazza, and Pedro Martinez posing together as Albuquerque Dukes, I believe I in 1990. Yeah. It's a great picture. Billy Ashley not pictured. Um <laughs> Piazza's probably getting in this year, Matt, 69.9%. Last year, 300, yep. 396 home runs as a catcher, most all-time. Um, and then we have this Ben Lindbergh article from this week. Not sure if you saw it on 538.com about uh, Piazza not being as bad of a receiver as he's regarded historically. I think mm-hmm. you've probably heard this rant from me. Uh, I always felt like the New York media had it all wrong when it came to catchers when they had Piazza and Posada. I felt like Posada was the worst receiver possible for a starting catcher in the major leagues. He was a much better thrower than Piazza, though, and he was a good hitter, switch hitter, patience, power, really good player. But as far as just the name of the position is catcher, he was the worst person at catching the ball that you probably ever saw be a regular catcher in the big leagues. Just a brutal receiver. Uh, Piazza was a terrible thrower, and Met fans, as Ben mm-hmm. points out in that article, had to put up with Todd Hundley and then Mike Piazza as the regular <laughs> catchers, two of the worst throwers in the last 50 years. And they were both... Well, the, then don't forget the Travis Darno show at the end of last year. And I, well, it, it just, it's just a Met tradition unlike any other, apparently. <laughs> Travis Darno uh, playing into that role. But Matt Piazza, I mean, like, I'm surprised, again, that it's taken him five years. It feels like the PEDs are the only reason why it's taken him this long. I mean, he's the seminal. So. He's I, the seminal Met of your Met fandom, is he not? I mean, uh, when you were growing up a young Mets fan, Mike Piazza was the number one Met, right? Well, I mean, uh, I, I first attached my affection to uh, Strawberry and Good in, in those Mets teams, but like of um, yeah, the past twenty years, yeah. I mean, a very and, and the most significant catcher. I well, mean, and da- and David Wright. Sorry, to get us off track, but anyway. Okay, no, I'm the one who started it, so. But but to me, his case, if he gets in, I'll be fascinated to see what happens with Yvonne Rodriguez after him, who also yeah. has a PED cloud. I think yeah. it's a little thicker for him than it is for Piazza. 
Like, well, yeah, he's he's named specifically by Conseco, yeah. And it's right. In the book, Juiced. Right. Um, but to me, Piazza's going to get in. And if he doesn't get in this year, I'll be stunned. He might be the first guy to publicly cry for not getting in. <laughs> it would be, yeah, pretty outrageous. I mean, his case is, is very strong, in my opinion. Um, and like you say, you know, not a good thrower. That's, that's documented. But, but then again, how many of these cannon-armed catchers who come up can't actually receive or handle a staff and then are quickly washed out of the major leagues, you know? That's it. No matter how well you hit as a catcher, I think if you can't work with a staff and you can't handle pitchers, you won't stay back there. It's just too important. So mm-hmm. Piazza, maybe he tested that early in his career, but I have to think that, I mean, when you had a guy like a Javi Lopez, who was a contemporary of his, and at his peak had some very good offensive seasons, he still never worked with, with, with Maddox. Maddox would never throw to him. Right. And that just didn't happen with Piazza. There was never a pitcher I can remember in his career who just said, oh, no, I'm not throwing to that guy. You know? You don't remember, you don't remember Glendon Rush? No, I, I don't. <laughs> I follow him on Twitter now, though, as a matter of fact. I know, me too. He's a crazy good follow. I <laughs> uh, didn't expect us to get into that subject today on the Baseball America podcast. <laughs> I did expect we would talk Tim Raines, and uh, Tim Raines, I, you know, the more I think about it, Matt, um, first, and kudos to Jonah Carey for trumpeting Raines' case, I just, you know, for whatever reason, I didn't realize how similar his case is to Ricky Henderson. Ricky Henderson, you know, had a better on-base percentage and uh, had a better isolated power, but a much lower batting average, um, you know, 15 points lower than, than Tim Raines. It kind of doesn't make sense unless it's the cocaine. It doesn't make sense to me that Reigns didn't get in before now. I, I, I can't really figure out, other than the cocaine, why he wasn't a slam dunk guy. It feels like the Hall does not acknowledge speed guys, because the other guy you've heard me rant about, whose case I think is pretty similar, frankly, is, is Kenny Lofton. And he didn't even stick around yeah. on the ballot for more than one year, which is boggles my mind. He's you know Most people point to Ted Simmons and Lou Whitaker, as the guys who should have stuck around longer, and I agree they should have, but how Kenny Lofton was lumped in as someone also ran doesn't make any sense to me. His career is pretty similar yeah, just, to Reigns. Just a victim of these of these super ballots we have now because of the you know the PED backlog. Yeah. And I, that I don't know. that probably has hurt Reigns. Do Do you think the cocaine stuff hurt him? I mean, he's the guy who was noted for sliding head first. To, so he wouldn't break the vials of cocaine in his back pocket. Right. Um, is there an example of a player? Well, Paul Molitor is the example of a player tarred by that scandal who's in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Certainly. Keith Hernandez, Dave Parker are not, and probably justifiably so. But. That that said, I do think it hurt Parker, because I think when you compare Parker to Jim Rice, their cases are very similar. And at his peak, yeah. at his peak Parker was the more all-around player. Um, yeah. he's a far better defender. If you ask me to take one, I'd, I'd rather have Parker. Uh, if I'm picking careers, Parker versus Rice, I think Parker was better. I, I, I do think yep. the cocaine, A, it cut into Parker's production, which kept him from being a Hall of Famer, and then B, I think it hurt him in the voting. Um, and he didn't have as good of a press officer as uh, Dick Bre- the late Dick Bresciani working the phones for, uh, <laughs> for Rice. But... Um, I think it did hurt Parker. I think it has hurt Reigns. Uh, I actually think Reigns will get in this year. Uh, I, I, I'll, I think that he will get in. 
Right. I, he got my vote this year. I'm not sure if I've if I supported him in the past, but you know, by the numbers, he is one of the best corner outfielders of the '80s. Um, I think, in addition to the cocaine, I think he's viewed somewhat as a compiler, kind of a nomad at the end of his career. Like Lofton. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because like like after he left the Expos, I don't know that he had a definitively great season. You know. That's correct. That's always been what I held against him. That as an Expo, he was a Hall of Fame caliber player, and then after that, he yeah. was just okay. But he was more than okay. He was actually pretty good. He was good for the White Sox. He d- he was very good, I'd say, for the White Sox. But he wasn't the same guy. He wasn't the same impact guy. So, mm-hmm. um, but he was still a very very good player. And I, I think that his I think he compiled enough. Eight hundred stolen bases is a hell of a lot of compiling, you know. And <laughs> And incredibly in, in, efficient. In the, in the expansion era, that's got to be second to Henderson, correct? It is. I think the other thing that I, actually I've always held against him is defense. Um, you know, again, right. comparing him to a player like Lofton. Lofton played center field. Reigns couldn't. Yep. Uh, Reigns yep. is the classic guy who maybe if they hadn't played on turf in the 70s and 80s when he came along, maybe he would have stuck at second base in today's era. Maybe if his man, mm. if he'd, say he'd come up instead of as an expo, as a White Sox, and played for Tony Larusa in the early '80s with the good guys. I think he would have been a second baseman. I think Tony Larusa, if he could have stuck freaking Skip Schumacher at second base, you think he could have could have made Tim Raines a second baseman? <laughs> you know, but um, that's a good point. I mean, the combination of the turf and more balls in play, yeah, you know, and maybe that did like, cut off an avenue for Raines to uh, yeah to have a, a career as a second baseman. Yeah, I because you know, he tried. He did play some second base in the Grandes Ligas, but uh, not very many. So, for me, uh, I used to have a hard time with this case. Um, I definitely am more amenable to it now. But yeah, Tim Raines, fifty-three games at second base in the big leagues, forty starts. Those would be fun strat <laughs> years when he could do that. <laughs> Kurt Schilling. Uh, this is the other guy whose post Hall of Fame career. You know, he's kind of like similar to Musina in that it seems like he wouldn't be the easiest guy to get along with because he has such strong opinions, but didn't stop him from winning two World Series um, and pitching in a third. And uh, for me, Schilling and Musina's cases are so tied together and so similar. feels like they should go in together, even though, uh, you know, they had you know, Musina's more of a regular season case, Schilling's more of a postseason case, less, it was less consistent, but, uh, I, I'm a shilling. I'm a shilling guy for the the Hall of Fame. Um, I'm a little bit surprised oh, yeah. he's only gotten 39 percent, Matt. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the ace of three World Series teams, uh, two of them won uh, postseason career all time. 11 and two with a 2.23 ERA. That's and ridiculous. 0.97, 0.97 WHIP against the, the best offenses in in the league. I mean, that. Is outstanding. And you really think about it, the teams that he did that against, let's just think, just think about the three World Series. 93 to the first team, the Blue Jays that had gone. So first of all, I was doing it against an American League lineup that had two mm-hmm. Hall Which Hall of Famer did it have DH in that year, Molitor or Winfield? I guess it was Molitor. One of those teams, did, did the, 93, uh, the 93 Blue Jays have, um, uh, I'm blanking on who they had now on that team. There was another Hall of Winfield? Famer on that team. No, Rick, did they have Ricky Henderson? I think they had Ricky. Ricky, yeah, yeah, yeah. They Maybe did they have Ricky Henderson. Too, right? The Blue Jays that year had Robbie Alomar, Hall of Famer. Joe Carter, not a Hall of Famer, but very good career. Tony Fernandez, not a Hall of Famer, but good career. 
Ricky Henderson, Hall of Famer. Paul Molitor, Hall of Famer. John Olerud, future, you know, uh, batting champ. And that, that was the year he hit 363, for crying out loud. Devin, Devon White was a really good player. But that was a great Blue Jays team. First team to repeat as World Series champions in 16 years uh, since the 77-78 uh, Yankees. So 15 years. So pretty significant team. Then in Arizona, they end, what was it, a four-time and five-year Yankee dynasty. He, he and Johnson do it pretty much single-handedly between the two of them. He was ungodly mm-hmm. in that postseason, uh, all three series for the uh, Diamondbacks. And then obviously mm-hmm. what he did for the Red Sox. Um, and they beat, you know, the Red Sox were beating, again, a, a very good Yankee team that had gone to the, mm-hmm. won the pennant the year before and then added A-Rod. And then the 2004 uh, World Series, you know, the Cardinals were a 106-win team with Pujols clearly. and Edmonds. And clearly. Yeah. And clearly the best team in the National League. You know, it wasn't just a surprise. Yeah. Yeah, he beat he, – the point is he beat – he didn't just pitch postseason. He beat some pretty all-time great teams in postseason. And it wasn't like he was beating some 83-win Cardinals team in 2006 is my point. So, uh, very – a career of a lot of significance. Oh, I forgot he was on the 07 Red Sox too and won a game right. in that World Series. So, he was part of uh, three World Series champions. And a fourth pennant yep. winner, so very significant postseason career for Kurt yeah. Schilling. Uh, yeah, I think the distinction being, I think he was clearly the ace for three of them. And bio seven, I don't know if he was still quite at that level, but he was still quite good. No, he was he was good that year. Uh, 150 innings uh, with a 123 ERA plus. I mean, he was still he was still good for for Boston that year. So, and just uh, yeah. the ultimate power and command pitcher. Um, the the right. strikeout to walk numbers at the end of his career are just so sick. Um, yeah, at now, one point he held he held the record for starters, I think, because he finished at four point three eight. Yeah, strikeout to walk. Cliff Lee, probably and, uh, the guy who might be beating him out. I would imagine. Is that right? Could be. Yeah. And then um, he, either he or Randy Johnson is the last pitcher to strike out three hundred batters in the season. Also. I think it, I think it's Randy Johnson. I would guess Randy Johnson, but it, it may be him. Yeah, Cliff Lee's only yeah. a three point nine three. So come back this year, Cliff. See if you can. Uh, oh, yeah. Can you yeah. even conceive of a pitching staff having two three hundred strikeout pitchers? Is that is that even possible anymore? No, I really can't because pitchers just don't throw enough innings. I mean, like two hundred strikeouts, two fifty is like a big deal now. So yeah, they, yeah, yeah. Well, they, there you go. Uh, it, if it didn't happen with Grinky and Kershaw, it ain't gonna happen. Kershaw um, got 301 this year. I'm sorry. Right. Take, take no, that last did. statement back. He did get 300 this year. I forgot when you mentioned Kershaw's name. I was like, ah, I think we just stuck our foot in our mouth here. Um, <laughs> we're thinking back too far back in the past, uh, not not to the present of 20, not just the recent past of 2015. Uh, Matt, real quick, Gary Sheffield. You know, <laughs> I used to vote for Sheffield. I used to think that Sheffield was getting shortchanged. And the more you look at it, Sheffield was a really bad defensive player. <laughs> um, and that I think that hurts his case. Um, played uh, there's actually a typo on this Washington Post story. I see it says he played from 1998 to 2009. He played from 88, I believe it is. He's 88 or 89 to 2009. Mm-hmm. I feel like Sheffield's kind of in that. He was almost like the Dale Murphy of his day. Um, right on the borderline. I don't think it would be bad. I don't think he would besmirch the the uh, Hall of Fame. Especially if you let other PED guys in, he was 
He was a Mitchell Report guy, was he not? Um, I believe Gary Sheffield was in the. He's tainted by Balco. I know he admitted using to Balco in two thousand four. Mm-hmm. But so there's the, there's the uh, PED stink on him, and there's the fact that he was a great power hitter, but during a time of a lot of great power hitters. So I would vote no on Sheffield these days. How would you vote? Uh, I'm also no, but I, I know that's a little bit inconsistent with the Edgar Martinez vote because you know we're penalizing Sheffield for his defensive value, but by the same token, he did take the field, <laughs> even though he actively harmed, harmed his team according to the metrics. And right. uh, the OPS pluses are not that different. You know, Sheffield also spent a lot of time in, in pitchers' parks, San Diego and Los Angeles, Miami, Florida, and, and LA. Yeah, so. You know, I think you could make a case for him, and maybe I should not have voted for Edgar if I didn't vote for Sheffield. But you know, I hadn't thought about it that way. That they are really, they are similar cases. I mean, like Gary Sheffield, even in his last year as a part-time Met, still a pretty good player. He really, mm-hmm. con- he really controlled the strike zone, on-base percentage a hundred points higher than his batting average, won a batting mm-hmm. title. So he's just he's a guy that I go back and forth on. To me, the numbers are actually pretty good. Here's the way Barry put it, and actually Barry kind of um, so he's 25th all time in home runs at 509, um, mm-hmm. 924 OPS, ranks 14th in the time of his career for players with at least 5,000 plate appearances. That's that's very good. It's not it's not top 10, but it's not far off. Right. Uh, tainted by Balco. And he only got eleven point seven percent of the vote last year, but I think he I I think he gets a little undersold as an offensive yeah. player. I think he was a great offensive player, and you make a great parallel with him and Edgar. He's a tough one, man. I'm telling you, he's a tough one. So he I think he has a, a case, you know, particularly if you're big haul and you know are in favor of players like Edgar Martinez. Um, but you know, by the same token, never won an MVP. I don't think he was ever regarded as the best player in the league or at his position or anything, even though he's close. Close, but and like you said, I mean, he, he did make a lot of All Star games. Um, and he played on mm-hmm. really good teams, um, and he, you know, did win a World Series on those '97 uh, Marlins, which is <laughs> crazy considering all the teams he played for. He played for the Yankees, he played for the Braves, he played for the Dodgers, among others. He won his World Series as a Marlin. I mean, I think he would go into the Hall <laughs> of Fame as a Marlin, which would be. Uh, but he and he and Bobby Bonilla and Moise Salou, they're winning in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Oh, that's a good, uh, those good memories. Uh, Lee Arthur Smith, Matt, we kind of touched on him earlier. He's a no for me, but uh, to me, if Hoffman gets in, I don't see how right. you keep this guy out. And he's in his 14th year of eligibility. Is he worse than Bruce Suter? I mean, I think there's probably worse candidates already in, though. He pitched yeah. more games and he threw more innings than Suter. Um, he pitched uh, 160. 41 more games than Suter, and he threw 240-odd more innings than Bruce Suter. So maybe not as dominating. I, I feel like Bruce Suter got in almost in part for inventing or for popularizing the split-finger fastball as much as for okay. being a great closer, you know? And he was kind of the okay. first great closer that kicked off the era of closers, really. But Lee Smith, yeah, he led, okay. the, he led the league in saves – Four different times from once at age twenty-five, and the last time at age thirty-six. You know his longevity was Hoffmanian. So, 
Yeah, and it was his record that Hoffman surpassed, and then Rivera surpassed both of them. Right. For saves. But certainly a more a guy who fits the more dominant theme of closers. Uh, I think his vagabond history hurts him. You know, um, right. I think it would it would certainly help him if he had one big year of a postseason for some team. Um, he really doesn't have that. In fact, the only times he pitched in the postseason, he was bad. Uh, he pitched five and a third innings. But he got a loss for the Red Sox in 1988 and one for the Cubs in 1984. Maybe if he'd had, I do feel like he would have probably been in the Hall of Fame long ago if he had been the closer for an '84 Cubs team that had won the pennant or got or won a World Series, you know. And this was kind of a forgotten deal. He pitched a ton of innings early in his career, 117, 103, 101 innings in his first uh, three of his first four full seasons uh, with those Cubs teams. And uh, yeah, that's just something that modern closers just don't do. You know, is Batances the only reliever to sniff, get close to 100 innings these days? And I don't think he even got to 100 innings. Right. He's the only one to have back-to-back 100 strikeout seasons in a long time. Yeah, he's a, uh, he's a unique cat for sure. I wouldn't vote for Lee Smith, but I do feel like if Hoffman gets in, I don't see how you can vote for Hoffman and not for Smith. Um, that, that's how I feel about it. That's fair. Sammy Suser, Matt Eddie, he's got 6.6% of the vote. Sammy Suser feels like he's linked to McGuire in that there's no way I think you would conceive of him as a Hall of Fame player if he had not used PEDs. But at the same time, 609 home runs. How does this guy not in the Hall of Fame? I'd even vote for him. Uh, Tim Kirkin, you? <laughs> I did give you a little turn. How was he not in the Hall of Fame? <laughs> Um, well, <laughs> have you voted for him in the past? I, I think I've always abstained from that. But. I think I've not voted for him. Um, you know, he, if you want a nitpick, you know, he had a 344 on base for his career, 273, 344, 534. Um, he also doesn't seem like he was, I mean, his case is, feels like it's a slightly higher peak Gary Sheffield case. Feels like it's a very similar case to me. So, but yeah, uh, I just think you know it was it was an era that he played with big first baseman and corner outfielders, and I don't think he really separated himself from Bonds or, or Manny Ramirez or Larry Walker or Sheffield, or those sorts of players. Or Vladimir Guerrero. He played with a lot of great contemporary. He did. He was the only one of all those guys to hit sixty home runs four times, which is really hard to do. <laughs> Somehow on B-Ref, the similarity score that he has is Chipper Jones. <laughs> wow. That is stunning. Gary Sheffield does not show up on his most similar, and I guess that's because Gary Sheffield's on-base percentage was 50 stinking points higher than Sammy Seussers. So Actually, I'm looking at the wrong page. I'm looking at Sheffield's page. His most similar player is Chipper Jones. Um, that I can see. Yeah. As hitters, that does make sense. Sammy Sosa, who I don't know if he gets points off for the way he, for his post-career transformation. Uh, maybe that doesn't help. Jim Tomey, Big Jim, who also walked a ton, is Sammy Sosa's most similar. Big Jim, Mike Schmidt, and then Reggie Jackson. See, Reggie Jackson's number three for both guys. That makes sense. Sheffield is ninth. Yes. Sheffield is ninth on Sammy Sosa's similarity scores. So, again, to use Reggie. a uh, 
to use a um, uh, comparison point from the, the Bill James book that influenced both of us. Um, did he invent the similarity scores in that book? It's, it's also during the peak years, it was about 50 on-base percentage points lower than all the other guys who we're talking about here of the 90s. Right. You know, that doesn't, doesn't necessarily sound like much, but it it's a know, lot. adds up to, I think, thir- like 30 or 35 times a season that he's not on base from other guys are. I think that's a big difference. Um, that said, he had 100 more home runs than than Gary Sheffield did. Um, so it's hard it's hard to leave that guy out, but I I feel like I'm leaving him out. Um, the 15th and final year of eligibility for Alan Trammell, Matt Eddie. Where do you sit on the Alan Trammell debate? I am pro Trammell, uh, the best shortstop of the American League. I think. Um, the, the players who play the skill infield positions or catcher or starting pitcher, I think they have a, an outsized impact on uh, team success. And I would be inclined to go big haul on players who play those positions. And uh, Trammell, behind only Ripken, American League shortstops of the 80s, I think I think he, I mean, he's in for me for sure. I think you summed up his case very well in that uh, he was clearly one of the best at his position, and he did it for a long time. You know, he was um, his first really above average, his first all-star season was 1980. His last really productive year was 1993 at age 35. He stayed productive. Yeah. He stayed as a productive regular in the middle of a diamond for a heck of a long time. And that's just uh, very difficult to do. He didn't strike out much at all. Drew his fair share of walks, could steal a, ba- a bag. He's a very, all, a very complete player. And... Um, the more you, I think, the more granular you get with his case, the more I support his case. I wound up voting him in uh, in our uh, mock ballots today. Again, I don't think the Hall of Fame will be worse to not have him in. I don't think it'll be worse to have him in. He's right on the borderline for me. I don't think he has to be in, but I, I ultimately voted for him for the reasons that you stated very well. You should, we should try to put as many uh, shortstops in the Hall of Fame. As, as deserved, and to put him in that shortstop context, he was an above-average uh, offensive and defensive shortstop, and that's very hard to do for a very long time. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? He's, I think he's the best shortstop not in the Hall of Fame, so in that sense, he's kind of like Ron Santo was a number of years ago before he got in the Veterans Committee. I like that comp. Yeah. The guy who was qualified to be in, he's the best player at his position, not in, at an important position. And eventually, the you know, the timing wasn't great in Santos' case because he's already passed. But uh, hopefully, the writers can uh, get Trammell in a little quicker. The similarity scores are interesting because the number one is Renteria, but number two is Larkin, who is in the Hall of Fame. Right. Um, I've that heard, I and I've heard that case made. I feel like he's in between those two guys. I feel like he was a little bit better than Renteria, not mm-hmm. quite as good. I wouldn't say even a little bit better than Renteria. I think he's a lot better than Renteria. But not quite as good as Larkin, so. Um, but then, closer, but closer to a, Larkin. There's also a bigger issue, probably. You probably agree with me that players from the '70s, '80s, and '90s are underrepresented in Hall of Fame compared to other eras. Definitely, right. and I think that's especially so, that, so for the '80s. Yeah, and then that drives my thinking with him and Reigns uh, as well. Interesting, interesting point. I like that point. Um, we are toward the end. We are at the end. The last guy is Billy Wags, who we have touched on before. 
And, you know, uh, when I went to the winter meetings, uh, Will Lingo and I went to a Vanderbilt-Dayton basketball game, which was a fine game. And on the way back, we had um, – our tickets had been arranged by Vanderbilt Sports Information staff, which also had arranged tickets, I believed, for Tyler Kepner, Vanderbilt alum, New York Times writer. Not allowed to vote in, vote in these things because of the New York Times. Does not allow their writers to vote for these things. Um, and – Tyler had actually just written an article about Billy Wags making the case, not necessarily that Billy Wagner would get in the Hall of Fame this year, but trying to put his case in perspective of, I really hope this guy doesn't fall off the ballot after one year, and laying out just how dominant Billy Wagner had been. We actually got a chance to give Tyler a ride back to the hotel that night, because his ride to get him there was not going back to the hotel, so... Um, we took him back. Well, you know, Will had a, rented, a car that we'd rented, so we drove Tyler back, and we talked about his article a little bit and about Billy Wagner's case, and mm-hmm. um, which I, I do think it's surprising that Larry Walker didn't make this list. So we'll talk Larry Walker after Billy Wagner. But the, the case that Tyler made is kind of restated here by Barry Sperluga. Um, You know, other than saves, and the fact that he did have an eighty-five point nine percent save percentage which I guess is just good, not elite. But otherwise, this guy was incredible. 184 opponents batting average, the best since 1900 for any pitcher who pitched 900 innings. Um, he is the best at a lot of things. He was the best at striking guys out, the best whip since 1969 for anybody with 900 innings. Uh, Billy Wagner was bouse. And he passes the Hall of Fame eye test when you watched mm-hmm. him, I'm not sure if he passes it statistically. And the biggest issue with Billy Wags, he only threw 903 innings. So right. ultimately, I would not put him in, Matt, because of the 900 innings. But to me, his case is way better than uh, than, than Trevor Hoffman's. I would say significantly better. He was much more dominant than Trevor Hoffman. Right. To me, that's the def- defining characteristic of a closer. Well, yeah, and dominating for a decade, you know, or, or more in this case, maybe a little bit more. That to me, that's where you start to draw the line. Ten years, were you the best at your position for a ten-year period? Well, you're probably an all-famer. I'm really surprised that when you look back at it, it's almost like someone should, like maybe his agent should have said to Billy Wagner, "Hey, you just went seven and two with 37 saves and 13.5 strikeouts per nine, 104 strikeouts in his last year as a pitcher for the Braves." You know, Bobby Cox is never going to abuse a relief pitcher because he didn't really do it to his closers pretty much ever. Why don't you stick around a couple more years? If you want to be in the Hall of Fame, you should stick around a couple more years. Make a couple, you know, $20 million more million and stick, pitch till you're 40. I'm, I'm almost surprised in retrospect it didn't happen. I know he'd had Tommy John surgery. I know he'd had injury issues. Um, it's, his case is a fascinating case uh, to me. I don't think he'll get in. I don't know that he'll ever get no. in. Do you think he'll ever get in with 903 innings pitched? No, I don't think so. I just uh, I think we need more perspective on pitchers like Wagner, these, these purely one-inning closers like him and Hoffman who don't have like the uh, the postseason bonus credit that Rivera has. Like I'm just the, looking, uh, just just it, it, that case made me look up. It made me think. Okay, let me look up Houston Street, my all-time favorite closer. <laughs> Um, <laughs> you know, Houston Street has 315 career saves. He's 31, he had age 31 season this past year. Houston's, 
He's 32, I know. Um, Houston has kind of a Trevor Hoffman kind of career going, to be honest with you. A lot of saves. Right. No, no, he's never led the league in saves. No black ink for Houston Street. He has one bold on the whole page on B-Ref because of he, had, he was Rookie of the Year in 2005. I mean, it feels like that's a Billy Wagner was way better than that. But that's a Trevor Hoffman career, it feels like, to me. Street's halfway there, there basically. I was looking up the batting average thing for Wagner when you were talking about that. And, yeah, like from 1980 forward, he's fourth on this list of guys with 100 saves. The three guys ahead of him are active closers who are still at peak. So Chapman, Kimbrell, and Jansen are the only three, only three pitchers since 1980 with 100 saves and the lower opponent average. Pretty That's, incredible. That is, that, that is incredible. Um, real quick, Matt, Larry Walker. I've changed my vote on Larry Walker. I, I, we also didn't mention Jim Edmonds. He was not on this 16-player uh, list. Um, right. Jim Edmonds and Larry Walker, I kind of, we, you know, former teammates. They were teammates on that 2004 Cardinals team that won the pennant. Um, Larry Walker certainly one of the best Canadian players ever. That doesn't really help his <laughs> Hall of Fame case. Uh do you, I guess I feel like the course thing has really impacted Larry Walker. And you and I discussed this uh, via email today. I used to be a big Walker backer. And the big reason why, like I mentioned earlier, is that scouts always used him as the template for the ideal right fielder. But the more I've mm-hmm. talked to people who were around the Rockies at that time, whether they were uh, with the club or they covered the team, people who were in the game and uh, around Larry Walker at his peak, uh, it's not a flattering picture they paint, to be totally honest with you. Um, so I'm not quite sure. It, it, it made me back off my Larry Walker support. I feel like Coors Field is hurting him more than anything else. Because uh, the one four, even with a 141 OPS plus, that takes Coors into account. I think people still don't know what to do with Coors numbers. Mm-hmm. Especially that era, of course. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean... Uh, 1172, 1168 OPSs, uh, uh, one, uh, one, an 11-11 in 2001 at age 34. All his best seasons, <laughs> I will say all his best seasons, came after age 30, from age 30 on. Uh, you know, his best season for Les Expo was the strike year in 94. I know he started late. He wasn't a regular until he was 23. All those things, I think, add up to Larry Walker being just on the outside, but... Um, his case seems like it has a lot of similarities to Sheffield's. He's a better defensive player, right? A way better defensive player. And base runner, yeah. yeah. Elite base runner. He won best tools for base running virtually every year. Every year, even when he was old. Another interesting thing is how many kind of modern corner outfielders would have fewer home runs than him among Hall of Famers, you know? He's about 383. I think that's pretty yeah. low. That's pretty low. Total. Um, I actually did vote for him because I think he was the best uh, right fielder of his of his era, of his peak years. I think he was better than Sosa, better than Sheffield. Interesting. And therefore, he was definitely more well-rounded. He's kind of like an Alan Trammell of right fielders. Yeah, but he has like what you mentioned about work ethic is, is a serious knock, and so is just longevity because he did not have it. <laughs> He did not have it. So we, we split on that one. I used to be a Walker guy. And I'll tell you what kind of made me not a Walker guy was that. And then when you compare him to Jim Edmonds, 
Chip Edmonds' career is pretty daggone similar. <laughs> 393 career home runs, a lower OPS plus of 132 for his career. Uh, played for the Angels and the Cardinals, primarily, you know, a little vagabond at the end of, the, of his career. Last uh, four stops were San Diego, the Cubs, the Brewers, <laughs> and the Reds. I did not remember he played 13 games <laughs> for the Reds in 2010. Did you remember that? No. <laughs> I did not know that. But even that year, between the, the Brewers and Reds, part-time player, 125 OPS+. plus. Jim Memmons was a really good player. Um, I wonder if he'll get 5%, Matt. I didn't vote for him for the Hall of Fame. I have a feeling he won't get 5% to stay on the ballot in this crowd of a ballot, you know? Better or worse than Kenny Lawson? That's a great question. I don't know who I'd prefer. Whom would I prefer? I don't know. I think I would say... It's harder to find Kenny Lofton, that true impact leadoff guy. But I think mm-hmm. most people, I, I, you know, Kenny Lofton had a 110 OPS plus for his career. I think it was maybe 107, something like that. This guy's 132, you know. Uh, I don't know how important Kenny Lofton's 700 plus stolen bases are. Um, Kenny Lofton did hit for a higher average. I don't remember what his on-base percentage was. It was a 299 career hitter. Um, well, obviously, if you're looking for a home run, he's not the guy you want up there. But I think you could argue he was better in pretty much every other facet, or at least on equal footing, wouldn't you say? Yeah, equal footing for sure. Three, uh, 372 career on base for Lofton and uh, 376 mm-hmm. career for Edmonds. So basically a push career-wise slide edge to Edmonds. I would imagine Edmonds was probably the better defender. Um, I'd have to go ask some scouts about that one, actually. Um, again, I feel like Lofton got shortchanged. I feel like Edmonds is going to get shortchanged. And Edmonds' career feels like it's pretty similar to, in a lot of ways, to uh, Andrew Jones. Andrew Jones hit more homers. But I feel like Jim Edmonds was a better hitter. Well, not to, he wasn't. I don't feel like it. He was a better hitter. I feel like Andrew Jones, though, is going to have a better chance to get in than, uh, than Jim Edmonds. Even though Jones really didn't have the longevity that Edmonds did. He hit a lot more home runs. I feel like that's why Andrew might get in. A lot more home runs and more gold gloves than Edmonds. Okay. So in terms of who do you predict is going to be, whose name will be called tomorrow? That's a great way to to, to wrap this up while I go pick up my kids. Um, I have to think about it from the non-BA universe. The guys who I think will get in, uh, certainly Griffey, definitely Piazza, I think Reigns and Bagwell are also going to get in, to be totally honest with you. I think that we're going to see three or four. I think either Reigns or Bagwell gets in. I would actually give the slight edge to Reigns because I think we're getting a younger electorate. And I do think Jonah Carey has been very uh, successful in convincing people on Reigns. And uh, so he's got, a tr- he's got someone out there trumpeting his case. No one's out there doing that for Bagwell. Um, and uh, I think Reigns, uh, also the fact that his clock is ticking, uh, helps his right. case more than, I think he'll jump up more than Bagwell. So I'm predicting... Does that also, does that also help Trammell then, or no? I think Trammell's too far away. Trammell, like, Reigns was over 50% last year. And again, who's, who was Trammell's champion? There really isn't somebody. Right. And I think we've seen that really help. That really helped with Jim Rice. It really helped with Burt Blylevin. I think it'll help with Reigns as well. So... Okay. Uh, that's yeah, I, I think you're right. Those are, the, those, are the, those are the four I would pick as well. I think um, 
Yeah, I think especially with with Vizio getting in last year, I think that'll break down some of the maybe the bias against the Astros players of the '90s because of Kemenetti. Right, bias. Now there's a there's a uh, bias. There's a all time leadoff hitter guy. I mean, yeah, you know, where does Craig Biggio land on your all time leadoff hitter list? I mean, is he better than? Was he a better leadoff hitter than Kenny Lofton? I, I, was, he, was he was he better than Tim Raines? No, I don't think so. Not peak. I think I think Raines and Henderson are kind of the gold standard. Right. Video um, definitely at the, at the front of that next line, though. Yeah. In in like your in your modern history, last uh, we'll just say last thirty five years. Let's go back to nineteen eighty. You're basically talking mm-hmm. Ricky and Raines are the gold standard, but that next group, I got to imagine Bijo's in that next group. Uh, I don't even know who the other. Guy, who else is even leaping to mind outside of Kenny Lofton? Like, who's today's best leadoff hitter? Uh, I, I just don't think of anybody uh, that way off the top of my head. Uh, a healthy Denard fan? <laughs> <laughs> that might be. I mean, I you know, well, I, I, I just think that's such a hard position to fill. Like, who is that premium? everyday leadoff hitter who does that for six, seven, eight years, you know? And everybody wants to hit home runs now. They don't want to have, uh, you know, be a table setter. Yeah, I'm, I'm, having so, a, I'm just having a hard time even thinking of it, of who leadoff hitters are, you know? Um, and that's, so again, that kind of plays into, for me, that kind of plays into um, the uniqueness of Tim Raines. It should make him a more valuable player, but I mean, the guys who I think of as great speed and on base type guys, uh, guys like Trout or McCutcheon, or to a lesser extent in terms of speed, AJ Pollock, those guys don't hit leadoff. I mean, is Jose Altuve the best leadoff guy in Major League Baseball right now? Does he even hit leadoff? I feel like he hits second uh, more than he leads off. Yeah, I don't know. Zobrist and Hayward would be good guys if they end up doing that this year for the Cubs. That's a great point. Uh, D. Gordon, I guess, is the other guy. He's the classic. He's probably the best example of the classic leadoff guy. Ben Gordon and Ben Revere. Not Ben Gordon. <laughs> ben Gordon's the basketball player. <laughs> D. Gordon. D. Gordon. I would say D. Gordon is probably your most classic. Drop him in the 60s, drop him in the 80s, drop him in the 2015 leadoff guy. Um. And what was he, the first time, first person to win batting championship and stolen base championship in a long time in the National League, right? Pete Ichiro, perhaps, a good guy. That's it. That's your guy. Of of the the 21st century, Ichiro is your best leadoff guy. That's a good call. Actually, that's a great call. So we, we worked we worked that out uh, out loud without uh, without any prep. About we ran down a so lot. Of, yeah, we ran down a lot of Hall of Famers today. Sure did. I can't wait for the announcement tomorrow. Did you want to discuss Jeff Kent at all or no? No, I um I don't know. I mean, Biggio and Alomar I think are at the top of the top of the their, their field, their peer group. Is there anybody else like you might slot in ahead of Kent? I think mean, he's number three, so maybe maybe lower. Among second basemen, like the last twenty, thirty years, or ever. <laughs> uh, whose who peaks were you know mid nineties to 
mid mid off, I guess. No, I mean like well, Carlos Baerga, but he didn't stick around as long. <laughs> <laughs> um, and to me, Kent is another one of those guys who best years were almost exclusively after the age of thirty, and it's not like he didn't get a chance. You know, he was the Mets' everyday guy, five hundred plate appearances, ninety three and ninety five. Uh, mm-hmm. traded a couple times because he's a difficult guy to di- bad defensive player and a difficult guy to get along with. Certainly had a great peak. Um, you know, to me, he's lesser than Biggio at second base, like you mentioned, lesser than Alomar. Other than that, um, and he's in that. You know, but I, I guess if I wanted to vote in a second baseman who was an offensive second baseman, I'd vote for Bobby Gritch ahead of Jeff Kent. So, um, but I'm not sure. Yeah, he he's a pretty unique case and a tough case. Again, it's an offensive player, but it's such an offensive era. It's hard to put him in that context. I, I'm not sure. I really don't know what to do with him. I don't feel like the Hall of Fame is worse off to not have him. I definitely don't feel like he has to be in. So. No, I, I have to vote no. I vote no as well. So, uh, so we're in agreement on that one, and uh, we hope that. Uh, but like you said, I'm I'm with you. I just I look forward to the announcement. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, we'll have plenty of coverage on it at BaseballAmerica.com uh, all day on Wednesday. Not from me. I'm on vacation. This was just pure fun. <laughs> talking, Hall of Fame with, talking Hall of Fame with Matt Eddie is always a good time. So thanks, Matt, for making the time. And uh, I'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. All right. All right. For, for Matt Eddie, I'm John Manuel. We'll see you on the next Baseball America podcast. So long, everybody. <laughs>